Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The vast majority of black students have reported experiencing racism in Hamilton schools, and there's now a call for change. A platelet lab at McMaster has become the national testing center for vaccine-related blood clots. The leaders of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico are getting back together at the White House. And on this Remembrance Day, we honor all who have fallen and those who continue to serve. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Months-long project exploring the experiences of black students is from the vast majority have reported experiencing racism in Hamilton schools. The Community Safety and Wellbeing Action Plan has put forth 11 recommendations for publicly funded school boards and the Ministry of Education. Uh, we heard from former student trustee Ahona Mehdi, who says, uh, really, enough is enough here. One black student experiencing racism, one black student experiencing targeted and punitive disciplining, one black student struggling from disproportionate health outcomes during the pandemic is one student too many. We also heard from um, Director of Education for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, Manny Figueroa, who says the recommendations are doable, but some may require some extra help from the province. Some of this requires more resources and funding for school boards, and those timelines, some of it will be dependent on ministry direction, ministry funding. The uh, Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, along with the Hamilton Students for Justice, uh, released this action plan that addresses safety for black youth in Hamilton schools. And here to talk about it on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CA is Kojo Dampney, Executive Director with the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Kojo, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. When, when I hear the vast majority of black students experience racism, that to me is extremely troubling. Yes, but the unfortunate and unsurprising thing is this has been going on for a long time. When we spoke to parents as well, there were a number of parents that talked about how they also experienced racism. And so uh, that is why they are they are they are asking for changes uh, within the school board system. Uh, that those numbers ninety five percent in the public board, seventy six percent in the Catholic board experiencing racism while in school. Um, your group, along with the Hamilton Students for Justice, has outlined a number of recommendations. One of which there, there's a, a, you know, a bunch of great ideas here, including. Uh, instituting or implementing a black curriculum. Tell us about that and why that w- why that is important. Yeah, so I think when we talk about uh, the influences of uh, black people, black communities here in Hamilton and in the country, uh, that is not done. Uh, the, the 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 most, and even that is not even done on a on a on a more deep level, is during Black History Month, and I think those things. Uh, need to be instituted. The the students uh, commented on reading the book uh, "To Kill a Mockingbird." Well, even <laughs> even in Hamilton, we have black authors uh, like Lawrence Hill and others that we could read. So, "To Kill a Mockingbird" as a book that uh, perpetrates uh, uh, black tropes and talks about slavery in, de- in in demeaning ways needs to be taken out of the school system. Another recommendation, and I, I, to be honest, thought this was already happening, anti-racism training for staff. That, that seems shocking to me that staff don't undergo some sort of anti-racism training. Yes, and, and you know, uh, I, I've spoken to lots, lots of teachers, and some of the teachers have resisted this type of training, right? They think that uh, anti-racism and anti-oppression is something that 
uh, that that uh, that goes against their right as as uh, as a teacher. So I think this is why this report was sent to all school stakeholders, the board, unions, the the, the Ministry of Education. We sent it to teachers, right, so that. We, we tackle this from a holistic point of view. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Our guest this morning is Coach O'Dantney, Executive Director with the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Uh, that uh, organization, along with Hamilton Students for Justice, has released an action plan that addresses safety for black youth in Hamilton schools. Another uh, recommendation, I find this one really interesting, is some changes to the dress code. Talk about that. Yes, yeah, so uh, a number of uh, students that participated in the in the Zoom consultations and in the survey com- commented about how when they wear certain items, teachers uh, racially profile them and then uh, make the assumption that they are part of a gang. They call police uh, to schools on them because they are wearing uh, uh, cultural dresses. And I think that is that is very very dangerous. We've we've had numerous instances where uh, uh, police are called for very minor minor infractions, and that is why the Hamilton uh, the public board HWDSB uh, discontinued the SRO program, and we are asking the Catholic board to do the same thing. And this is not even something that we just recommended. The Ontario Human Rights Commission has also recommended that the SRO program in the province be terminated as well. Kojo, uh, what was the response from educators, both the Hamilton Public and Catholic Boards? How have they responded to these recommendations? Yeah, well, I mean, they they have the reports, they have the recommendations, some of the recommendations we've been telling them. I think I'm, I'm particularly concerned about all boards but I am also focused on the Catholic board because when I've had conversations with them, they, they have been slow to move. And also, we, I get lots of emails of, of racist incidents coming from their schools as well. So I think they need to start taking a look at these recommendations and implementing them as well as the other boards. Obviously, the public board has started some things, but again, we're seeing that these acts of racism continue to uh, uh, fester. Kojo, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Kojo Dempney is the Executive Director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, talking to us about uh, an action plan, a list of recommendations that uh, that organization, as well as the Hamilton Students for Justice, uh, has released that uh, addresses safety concerns, racism issues, clearly, for black students in Hamilton schools. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Huge news and great news for a platelet lab at McMaster University, which has become the National Testing Center for Vaccine-Related Blood Clots. Isaac Nazi is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University and the scientific director of the McMaster Platelet Immunology Laboratory. Isaac, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Rick. It's an honor to be on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, how, how did this happen? How did the, this lab become the National Testing Center for Vaccine-Related Blood Clots? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, before this all started, about four decades ago, this lab was established to study uh, blood clotting events in response to uh, the immune uh, system. 
And uh, specifically, we study a disease called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which produces antibodies via activate uh, platelets when you're exposed to heparin during a surgical uh, setting. It turns out that the clotting events that happen because of AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson produce a very, very similar immune response to uh, platelets. Now, we have very slight testing in the lab to identify both those diseases, and it was natural that the lab became the testing center for the country uh, as a consequence of these vaccination events because we had the expertise and the infrastructure to do it already. We were already doing this stuff for the country. And uh, in regards to this uh, new, I guess, adventure for the uh, the testing center, you've received some federal funding to help you guys along. Yes, absolutely. I mean, at the onset of these events, uh, nobody knew what was happening. We had uh, some insight about it because uh, the events started happening in Europe about four to five weeks before they started in Canada. Um, so we got uh, insight into that and we were prepared for it. We were in talks with... Uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, include, uh, and, and you know we had this set up in, uh, in quickly, and samples were being sent to the lab. We've connected with the physicians across the country, uh, how to identify these uh, individuals, how to ship the samples to us, what our procedure is to report back to them, so they can be um, treated in a timely fashion. Isaac Nazi is our guest, associate professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University and scientific director of the McMaster Platelet Immunology Laboratory. It has uh, now become the National Testing Center for Vaccine-Related Blood Clots. Um, testing for VIT, how does it work? How did you, um, uh, you know, uh, combine everything that you've already known into this new application? Yeah, so this is a great question, too. About three to four five, or five years ago, we developed a test uh, for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, uh, which was a modification of the original test because the original test would miss a few, um, something like one to five percent of those those patients. Now we shelved that test back then because it wasn't uh, super useful at the time. Well, it turns out that that test we developed about five years ago ends up being the actual gold standard test for the vaccine-induced uh, clotting events. Uh, as a consequence of AstraZeneca Johnson Johnson uh, vaccination campaign. Um, so quickly, we were able to bring that test back to life. Um, when The suspicion of this, these clotting events are much higher than the actual events themselves. So we start off with a quick screen, which is a test that would identify, do you even have antibodies that could possibly activate the platelets? And if you don't, we rule out the disease. We tell the doctors, this is, this is not the case. If you do have the antibodies, we switch to the second test, which is this specialized test that will tell you these antibodies are actually activating the platelets. Once we get a positive signal from the second test, we that this patient does have um, what's called VIT, which is the disease, the clotting disease after AstraZeneca, and they can proceed with their treatment accordingly. And we've also devised mechanisms on what the best proper treatments are for this disease. I understand the McMaster Platelet Immunology Laboratory is now receiving international samples. Yes, so now we're helping other countries. One thing I didn't mention is that these specialized testing are only centered in, in, in a very few reference labs in the world, and I'm saying less than a handful. We're lucky here in Canada that we have the lab here at McMaster in Hamilton, 
Now, there are many countries across the world that do not have access to this test, and they so uh, so as a consequence, they can't confirm that patients have these clotting events that are being caused. So we're in collaboration with international partners to get their samples, diagnose them, and report immediately whether these patients are confirmed to have VIT or not. And mainly right now, we're working directly with Brazil, where AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson, the adenovirus vaccines, are being used over there. So we're helping them now diagnose these cases. How long does the test take? Is it instantaneous, or does it take a few hours or a few days? Yeah, so the first test, which we call the screening test, takes about two to three hours. The second test takes another five to six hours, but the second test, the confirmatory specialized test, happens the second day. So the process could take up to two days to confirm these uh, results in some patients. But the majority of them are just suspected. They're not actually uh, VIT patients, so they're ruled out much quicker than the other ones. Has this VIT testing really taken over the lab, or are you able to do other things? Unfortunately, we can't shut down everything else that we do, so we continue to do what we were doing before. Uh, That's why funding that we got from the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada was super important because when we're funded that well, we can do science very quickly, we can do the diagnosis very quickly and work directly with doctors to ensure that the uh, uh, patient safety is, uh, is number one on our list. Isaac, thank you very much for the time. A great work at the lab and continued success down the road. Thank you very much. And I'd like to send a shout out to all my uh, team team because they worked uh, around the clock to make sure this was uh, working properly and getting done accurately too. Well said. Kudos to the team. Thanks a lot, Isaac. Thank you. That is Isaac Nazi, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University and Scientific Director of the McMaster Platelet Immunology Laboratory. Mac is definitely on the map, and uh, obviously in terms of uh, VIT and uh, the battle against COVID-19. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The White House is going to host the leaders of Canada and Mexico at a summit later on this month. Here to discuss it is Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie, good morning. Good morning, Rick. So the three amigos are back together again, and this is the first time in a while. It is the first time. It's the first time since 2016 when the three leaders had met in Ottawa. The kind of uh, summit between all three countries was shelved during the Trump administration. It really kind of put uh, put the three leaders in a rocky situation uh, as as kind of Donald Trump had tried to really put this America first and protectionist style policy in place. Here we are now, uh, you know, several years later, it is going to likely be a far more collegial environment uh, than existed over the last four years. Uh, But nonetheless, there are some serious issues issues uh, that all three leaders would like to see at least discussed and potentially conquered that are impacting all three economies. And one of those still exists is that American protectionist kind of thought from the Biden administration and, and many governors and senators in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely it is. Uh, And it is to try and drive home the fact that they want America to be the world's leading economy. It's try, it's an attempt to try and, you know, bolster the American economy on its own, but at the same time push back on emerging economies and something like China, which has become kind of an economic geopolitical threat to most economies around the world. So in trying to push America first, they're trying to drive, you know, money back within their own borders, but at the same time, it can create a competitiveness crisis between Canada and Mexico. 
there are you know additional issues as well when it comes to things uh, like President Biden's Build Back Better infrastructure plan that would offer uh, incentives uh, uh, for people who buy uh, electric vehicles, something that's really being pushed back on by Canada, again, fearing that the competitiveness is going to uh, kind of be eroded here. So there are opportunities for the three leaders to talk. Uh, it will likely have some terse moments, but the fact that they are kind of back at the table again shows that this kind of is charting a new path forward. This uh, trioka of a meeting comes uh, just uh, a few days after the COP26 conference ended. How high on the agenda will climate change be? I think it's going to be a big deal for all three. President Biden, when he ran uh, last year against Donald Trump, really made climate change an integral part of his campaign push. Uh, there were billions and billions and billions of dollars in both the infrastructure and the social spending plan that has yet to pass uh, to try and combat climate change. This is obviously something that impacts Canada as well uh, uh, with their defense over the north and with, uh, with climate change just being kind of a, a hot and front burner issue uh, for not just Justin Trudeau, for Biden uh, and for all world leaders. So there's an opportunity here to work together. The problem is in the United States, you really do have a kind of partisan divide and pushback over climate change because there are still so many Republican states that are heavily reliant on things like coal. Uh, and, and that can kind of get in the way of any kind of progress. But again, the fact that conversations can take place allows for avenues and paths to be followed. Interesting to note as we speak with Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Interesting to note that this meeting comes after the land border issue is uh, basically resolved between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Uh, what else is on the agenda that, that will be of note? I think uh, that, well, there, there are a number of things that are kind of on the agenda that haven't really been publicized yet. The, the, the White House readout that came of this meeting simply says that it's all about strengthening goals and trying to reaffirm that the partnerships with each other. Uh, the COVID-19 crisis is still going to be a massive part of this conversation, A, because it's still here, and B, because it's still dogging not only the economy of the U.S., but also of that uh, of Canada and Mexico. Inflation is such a big part of that right now. Uh, and you're right, with the border reopened, that is kind of one hurdle that was cleared, but there are still issues when it comes to the pandemic that are uh, integral between both countries, namely the testing, namely the vaccines, and namely the fact that this virus is still ongoing. So there's an opportunity here to be able to advance health care policies that could be shared between both uh, between all three countries. It's going to be a, a kind of, you know, omnipresent uh, issue over this uh, over this meeting, the fact that. They didn't talk for you know two years because of a pandemic. They're meeting together once again because the pandemic is still driving them all together. This is one of those topics that you know everyone wants it to go away, but ultimately the pandemic is is kind of that biggest obstacle that still needs to be overcome. As you mentioned, this is the first summit since 2016 uh, before Donald Trump became president. How much of this get together is going to be a resetting of the relationship between these three nations? I think President Biden has been trying to do that on a world stage uh, for the last 10 or 11 months, trying to build back better what Donald Trump in his eyes had torn apart. Uh, and I think that there was a rocky relationship between Canada and the U.S. during the Trump administration. If you think back uh, to uh, steel and aluminum tariffs and the entire tariff talk that came out uh, of the Trump White House that really kind of pushed Canada aside, which has always been such a key kind of trading uh, and kind of a defense alliance partner with the United States. I think this is that opportunity to kind of bring everyone 
everyone back in. I think what's interesting to note here is that President Biden is not like his predecessor uh, two ago from President Obama, where there was kind of a big jovial moment for him and, and kind of uh, uh, kind of increased ratings for him in the United States. Joe Biden doesn't have that in the U.S. He doesn't have that in Canada. And I think this poses a problem now for Justin Trudeau, who doesn't have that ability, like in the Trump administration, to kind of stand up for Canadians' needs. He's really trying to battle back against Joe Biden, who is not Donald Trump, who is not Barack Obama. Uh, and I think that this is going to be a relationship that the two need to try and work on and build at because it's not Donald Trump, it's not Barack Obama. This is kind of new and uncharted territory for Justin Trudeau to be walking into. Reggie, as always, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. We should also note that this will be Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's first visit to Washington since uh, President Biden uh, occupied the White House in January. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is Remembrance Day, a day that we pause and reflect at uh, the many men and women who gave of themselves and served with the Canadian Armed Forces uh, through two world wars. Korean War, many other battles, certainly the Afghan War as well that uh, has now ended and our troops are back home from that conflict at 20 years worth. What does Remembrance Day mean to you? Well, let's ask our next guest. He's a retired Army captain and an historian of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, and his name is Tim Fletcher. Tim, good morning. Welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. Uh, What does Remembrance Day mean to you? What comes to mind on this day? Friends. I think of friends, uh, uh, friends who served, uh, one friend in particular um, who uh, was killed in Afghanistan. Um, and I, I go back to my days as a young reporter interviewing World War II veterans and how much their uh, remem- uh, memories are similar to the memories of soldiers who served today. Uh, the comradeship, the fun, the adventure, the hardships, and yet uh, something that they all volunteered for. And, and that's the key. They all volunteered for it. It's, uh, it's a different life, uh, not for everybody, but for the ones who took part, uh, it's unforgettable. And, and remembering their service is, is so important to a country that expected these people to do a job on their behalf. Is there a friend or a story that involves a friend that is closest to your heart? Not a particular story, but I remember one interview with a World War I veteran I conducted many years ago, and he was talking about his time in the, in the front lines uh, in World War I, and some reinforcements came forward, and he told them, don't tell me your names because you're not going to live long enough to, uh, to make it worthwhile. And he said within two days, the 50 or so reinforcements that were sent up were all dead, and he survived. He never understood why he survived. But to say to them, don't tell me your names, because you won't live long enough, um, has always struck home with me. And... Um, I don't know how anyone can deal uh, with something like that, and yet hundreds of thousands at that time and in war since have had to deal with that. It's uh, it's unimaginable. It's really a, a heavy weight to carry. It's huge. Um, maybe it's not something you think of when you join. 
when you join, people join for all sorts of reasons. They're patriotic or they want adventure or they just need a steady job, uh, you know. Um, it depends on your life uh, circumstances. And But once you're in, uh, there's a comradeship that develops. And whether you get to know these people or not, you served with them. They're there with you uh, doing what you're doing, whether it's in the trench or on a patrol or just in garrison spending time cleaning your rifles. It's a shared experience, and then to lose them, for whatever reason, is is very hard, and uh, it's a burden that you carry inside. If you're a soldier, you sort of get it. If you're not a soldier, it's very hard to imagine, but the burden is there all the same. We are reflecting on this Remembrance Day on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, and we're doing so with Tim Fletcher, retired Army captain and Royal Hamilton Light Infantry historian. Speaking of the Rileys, what a what a glorious history the Rileys have. Well, they do. Um, the oldest uh, infantry regiment in Hamilton, uh, and then the uh, Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders came along later, and, and many other units. Uh, artillery, medical, uh, combat service support, uh, communications, all in Hamilton. It's what makes Hamilton what we call a, a garrison town. But uh, the Rileys have a unique connection to Remembrance Day. Uh, the Rileys and the Queen's Own Rifles fought at um, the Battle of Ridgeway in 1866, which led to an event called Decoration Day because the government did nothing to remember the veterans of the Fenian Raids. So they took matters into their own hands, built a monument in Toronto, and began holding services of remembrance there. And members of the 13th Battalion, uh, which which is today's our July, uh, went to that monument to share in remembrance. After World War One, uh, there became a need to do more remembrance, and in 1930 the government changed what was then called Decoration Day when veterans' graves were decorated and services were held uh, to Remembrance Day on uh, November 11th today uh, in honor of the armistice from World War One, And as a result, they moved Halloween, or Halloween, they moved Thanksgiving uh, to October, which is why we celebrate Thanksgiving when we do. But that came about because of the 13th Battalion and the Queen's Own fighting at the Battle of Ridgeway. So there's a direct connection between Hamilton and uh, today's Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day during the pandemic has certainly been uh, different. Uh, it will be, uh, I think, much better this year with many cenotaphs uh, reopening or being open, not necessarily some to the general public, as, as is the case downtown in Hamilton. Only invited uh, personnel are going to be able to attend that ceremony. But the feeling is still certainly there. You know, Remembrance Day began dying out uh, in the wake of particularly the Vietnam War, when, when anti-war feelings rose around the globe, and, and nobody wants war. Uh, but gradually, as Canadians took part in peacekeeping operations, uh, and, ca- and we began taking casualties doing that, uh, the feeling returned uh, of, of remembrance, that something had to be done uh, to remember the sacrifices of, of the people we expected to do our fighting and, and peacekeeping for us. Uh, and not all the sacrifices uh, were fatal. They were, some were wounded, 
and some carry uh, internal scars, PTSD and so on. And the public began to recognize this. And Afghanistan, of course, was a major spur to that. And I began, I noticed myself, a rise in attendance uh, at cenotaphs, at services of remembrance, and the wearing of the poppy, which in, for a long time a lot of people never did that. And they, the, I think they began catching uh, the feeling of remembrance. And uh, through efforts such as what we're doing right now, and other public uh, remembrances um, online and broadcasting, uh, the feeling through the pandemic was maintained. We, we lost the physical presence at a cenotaph or other memorial, but we kept the mental presence. Uh, the, the feeling was kept alive in our own hearts individually, and I think a lot of people carried their own service of remembrance through, uh, through this kind of public exposure. And... Um, and I want to thank you for that. Well, I want to thank you for your time, your thoughts, your memories and stories, and most importantly, thank you for your service as well. Tim, thanks for the time, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. Tim Fletcher, retired Army captain and RHLI historian, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Pleased to be joined now by the president and CEO of Historica Canada. His name is Anthony Wilson-Smith, and he joins us now. Good morning, Anthony. Morning, Rick. What are you thinking about on this Remembrance Day? Oh, boy, so much. I mean, you think back on the two great, right, meaning awful world wars. You think back to the fact that Canadians continue to serve around the world. You know, most recently, Afghanistan, always there for peacekeeping. It's such a big part of things, and you know, and and we we do put that aside in our thoughts, and then this once a year, at least, ideally more often, bring it to mind. I, I've always said that Canada's role in the first and second world war, certainly the Korean War, the Afghan War, should not be understated because our nation played a pivotal part every step of the way. Well, and Rick, you look at the numbers from it, and it's staggering. So you know, we're a population of eight million, barely eight million in World War One. Um, we send off, you know, we send off hundreds of thousands to fight. More than sixty-six thousand Canadians died. At, well, actually, so more than six hundred thousand served. More than sixty-six thousand died. Another hundred seventy thousand wounded. Two out of every five people, men, largely men, who went off to serve in World War One, came back physically damaged or not at all. And that doesn't even take into account PTSD. And then World War Two, forty-four thousand dead as well. I mean, just you know. We feel the effects today of all those people who never had families, never came home, never did the things they were meant to do. Remembrance Day is always obviously a special day for many. It's also a special day as we remember uh, the emergence of the poppy, and it, it is uh, marking its 100th anniversary today. Yeah, and bless the Legion. They've done a great job every year of driving it. And it's been tough this last couple of years, you know, of course, I mean, uh, you know, first of all, in the pandemic, you're not seeing as many people around. It's tougher to get people out to do it. And also people just don't carry cash as much anymore, although they've adapted nicely to that. But, you know, that living, enduring symbol of the poppy means something, a great deal to all of us. And again, bless them for it. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Memory Project, which is a fantastic initiative uh, by the uh, Historica Canada to basically bring veterans into our schools and uh, pass on why this day is so important. 
Yeah, and thanks for that, Rick. So we've been doing this for 20 years now. And every year, in normal year, we'd arrange more than 2,000 visits coast to coast to coast of veterans going right into schools, talking to 14 to 17-year-olds about their firsthand experiences. In this last couple of years, we did a pivot like everybody else, and we started doing it on Zoom. And we're still not just quite the same numbers, but we're still reaching large, large numbers everywhere. And it's just quickly very moving. You see these 15 and 16-year-olds, and we still have some World War II veterans who speak well into their 90s. And at first, the kids wonder, what could I possibly have in common? And then they listen, and they get riveted, and you see them starting to think and say, what would I have done? That person was not much older than me when they went off to serve. You know, Would I do the same today? And that's the fundamental question. And that is the fundamental question. And it, it, I would imagine that most students, if not all, would say, yeah, I would I would go to if, you know, if we had a world war right now, the sentiment would be, yes, we're all in this together. Yeah, I think that would be. And I would have to say on that, you know, and I'd be glad, to, you know, but in many ways, the thoughtful ones would say, I wonder, because, you know, I'm hearing about how absolutely horrible it was at ground level. I'd have to really, you know, I have to go pretty deep inside myself and think about it. So, you know, I mean. The question to put your life on the line is a fantastic, is a remarkable thing to do. And it's not something done lightly. And, you know, and we see, I you was know, just talking about the effects more than 100,000 young men lost in two world wars. Uh, Historica Canada also uh, in charge of the Heritage Minutes, which we've seen from time to time on TV. Are any new episodes, if I can call them that, uh, coming on board? Well, we have, but not tied to the war, but we have two in recent years, and I'm glad to have the chance to remember them. So we did the 75th anniversary of D-Day. We did one in, um, in 2019, and uh, seen by already by more than 8 million people. And uh, we did one on the Liberating key role in the liberation of the Netherlands last year, marking the 75th anniversary of that. And uh, again, seen by millions, but always there. And, you know, I, I do want to emphasize, because when I'm plugging our programs, Everything we do is for free. It's up and available. Anybody who wants to see those minutes can do just, you know, Google Historica Canada or even Heritage Minutes and they'll find them. And they're really well done and they really offer a sense of pride to uh, countless Canadians. Anthony, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us and uh, spending some time with us. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you. That is Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. And we were talking uh, a few minutes ago about the poppy and this being the 100th anniversary of the Remembrance Poppy, it was introduced by a Madame Anna Guerin of France. She was inspired by John McRae's uh, poem in Flanders Fields, and so she founded a charity to help rebuild some regions of France that was devastated by uh, the First World War, and she created these poppies, um, this symbol, uh, made out of fabric to raise money for, uh, for veterans. And uh, she brought this idea to uh, Canada, and uh, at a meeting in uh, Thunder Bay, she introduced this uh, proposal to the Royal Canadian Legion, which was called the uh, Great War Veterans Association at the time, and uh, it really took off from there. So the poppy has really been a part of our Remembrance Day ceremony uh, since then, celebrating 100 years today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Coding for Veterans National Career Caravan Tour rolled into Hamilton uh, last month to recruit veterans for jobs in the software development and cybersecurity fields and made a pit stop at the Royal Canadian Legion on Limeridge Road East on October 28th and continues to visit some other cities across this great country. The executive director of Coding for Veterans is Jeff Musson, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jeff, good morning. Uh, good morning, Rick. What is Coding for Veterans all about? What do you guys do? 
Yeah, so Coding for Veterans helps Canada's military veterans retrain for jobs in Canada's tech sector. And there's two aspects to the program. You have um, software development and cybersecurity. And the program's delivered 100% online through the University of Ottawa. And what's interesting is in Canada, we have a projected shortfall of about 147,000 IT jobs that are going to go unfilled in the next 12 to 18 months. And uh, the demand are there for jobs for, for our graduates coming through this program. So why coding? Are veterans well-suited to learn it quickly? Yeah, so what's interesting is, is if you actually look at the soft skills that men and women of our military have, things like leadership, attention to detail, teamwork, can-do attitude, those soft skills are the best uh, you know, skills that the top um, coders and those in the IT industry possess. But with the added value, especially in the area of cybersecurity, you know, individuals who come into our cyber program, we always like to say they go from serving on the battlefield to now serving in cyberspace and protecting our country that way. And what's great is um, these men and women, um, you know, that leave our service they also have security clearances. So once they're done our program, they can hit the ground running and get employed uh, almost immediately. That's a good point, too. Jeff Mussin is our guest. He's the executive director of Coding for Veterans. How does the C4V program work? Does it teach veterans the basics all the way up into advanced skills? And how long does that take? Yeah, so um, the program is flexible. And so we have individuals that come into the program with absolutely no IT background, as well as individuals that have left the military with significant uh, background. And so the program um, on the software side, it's pretty intensive. It's 650 hours, so you're not going to learn it over a weekend, but it'll take someone about six to eight months doing it full-time uh, there also is a part-time option. And on the cybersecurity side, it's 980 uh, hours, and it takes them about 8 to 10 months full-time, and obviously uh, there's some part-time options as well. I understand the program is also open to Afghan interpreters who can safely uh, immigrate to Canada. Is that true? Yeah, so what's interesting is is uh, military veterans in our program, their tuition is covered 100% by Veterans Affairs Canada if they've released after 2006 and have put in a minimum of six years. What's interesting is we've actually had a number of Afghan veterans in our program, and I'm sure your listeners are aware of the situation that unfolded this past summer over uh, in Afghanistan. And so as a collective group, we actually went back to our um, corporate partners and we raised scholarship money because we weren't able to obviously help the Afghan interpreters uh, immigrate to Canada, but they were really essential to Canada's mission over there. But we really could help them establish careers uh, to provide for not only for themselves, but their, for their families when they got here. So uh, we've extended our program to now allow Afghan interpreters to, um, uh, to enroll and we're happy to say we've got uh, four of them that are prospective students just going through the application process right now. Jeff Mussin is our guest. He's the Executive Director for Coding for Veterans. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. How long has the program been around and what has it done during the pandemic? Have you seen more vets enroll? 
Yeah, so what's interesting is the program is relatively new. It uh, The first cohort was uh, back in September of 2019, and it actually only had five people in it. And today, we have just over un, just under 200 people. And so what was interesting was the program initially from the beginning was established to be delivered 100% online because we set up focus groups with veterans, and they told us, we're done uprooting our family. So whatever training happens has to come to us. And lo and behold, the pandemic hit and everyone scrambled to put programming online. Well, we were already there and we've seen our numbers increase. And, and what has been interesting and the reason for our coding for veterans career caravan across Canada was we would typically do recruitment at job fairs and those closed down. And so what we've done is, is we've gone coast to coast we kicked it off in ottawa on september 10th and we'll be finishing it back in toronto and and so what we've um wanted to be able to do is get word out to our program and we partnered in with legions and others in a socially distant manner and set up information booths and kiosks uh outdoors and it's been tremendous and we've seen a tenfold increase in the number of people applying to the program it's really a great idea, and it's really doing a lot of good, uh, no doubt about that. Jeff, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it, Rick. That again is Jeff Musson. He is the Executive Director of Coding for Veterans. Uh, Google it. It's a pretty cool uh, initiative where veterans can uh, not only hone their skills, but launch a new and exciting career. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make Make sure you rate and review.